Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 27 and we're dealing with a period in the first half of 1700, give or take a decade or two. Last episode we heard about the Trek Boer economy and how it developed and a new farmer had also emerged on the landscape called the Boer. The descendants of Dutch and French immigrants were beginning to expand their footprint across southern Africa and of course the repercussions were going to be enormous. Remember last episode, we heard that the minister of the church at Drakenstein, Pietras van Arkel, had written an extraordinary letter to Governor de Charon based in Cape Town. The minister had been shocked by a report he just received about the actions of a settler raiding party which had made it all the way to Algoa Bay in the Eastern Cape and they had been particularly brutal in their treatment of the coin. A party of 70 barterers, or as the church minister pointed out, murderers and robbers, had taken 200 rix dollars worth of goods with them when they set out from Stellenbosch and headed to the Gonikans, as the Dutch called them, the Gonatka, near the present-day Kabacha of Port Elizabeth. The tribe was massacred and all their cattle and sheep carried off. The Gonatka, who survived, followed the Dutch raiding party and begged to be killed or taken captive as they were going to starve to death without their animals. Van Arkel, back in Drakenstein, was briefed by the shocked Khoi from the peninsula, who had joined the raiding expedition, not realizing it was actually going to be a murdering expedition. We need to cast our eyes back to 1718 to understand what had happened. The main contractor supplying the VOC company with meat was Jakobus van der Heyden, who had won the rights to provide meat to passing fleets, but had found it extremely difficult to locate cattle and sheep. His predicament worsened when Khoisan attacked his cattle post in Rafius Onerend in January 1719 and stole 700 head of cattle. Van der Heyden had experienced the revenge of the Khoi for an earlier Dutch raid. Then in 1719, it was becoming so difficult to access cattle that for the first time, no one wanted the VOC contract to provide meat to the company. Van der Hayden was now considering drastic measures. So he hired mercenaries from the youngsters and soldiers at the Cape and set out in early 1723 to steal cattle from Koi living far away from Cape Town. The real slaughtering business was about to start. The hidden 17 back in Amsterdam were apprised of this raid and it was decided to terminate van der Hayden's contract with immediate effect. And with unintentional irony, they declared that he has never been much good in the slaughtering business, and so deserves no favor above others. But of course, he was very good at the coy slaughtering business. The whole affair sounds a little like the Christian voyage I described of 1702, where a similar raid in which van der Hayden had also been involved traveled up the coast. Nobody was ever brought to justice for that affair either. So the VOC duly hired two new meat contractors, Johannes Kreewagen and Jakob van Bochum. But these two did not bring stability to the meat supply because a year later, in 1724, they had their cattle stolen from the Groenekloof Reserve. We know that these two had followed in the footsteps of their predecessor. They had also been raiding the little Namakwa and stole a hundred cows. The little Namakwa raided him back. Raiding your neighbors of whatever color is a messy business because they tend to raid you. Two graves, you know. Another irony was Kreewagen and van Bochum's Groenekloof robbery was not by the Khoi. It was by Dutch drosters or deserters from the VOC troops stationed at De Kaap. The anarchy that characterized the frontier would soon descend into something far more serious, as we're going to hear. Duly in 1725, the VOC and the governor had had enough, and the Council of Policy decided to withdraw the right of the colonists to engage or barter with the Khoi Khoi in any way. A placat or edict was issued in 1727 confirming this, but it was too late. The damage had been done and the Khoi were beginning to consider what direction their future actions should take. 
it wasn't going to be pretty. By 1726, there were no koi within 60 miles of the Cape, so we must consider that by the mid-1720s, the characteristic features of the northern frontier zone were established, as Nigel Penn puts it, and the dynamics of expansion were now irreversible. Increasing numbers of koi began seeking employment in the services of Dutch farmers and the trick boers. As the colonial frontier expanded, it moved into more hostile terrain, leading to even more hostile settler responses, and now even further beyond the protective reach of the company. The koi began preparing for the mother of all wars. While this ban on colonial bartering was a name only on the ground, the stock farmers had moved over the Pikinius Pass in the Ulifans River Valley. The white settlement had now crossed the open plans of the Swartland and penetrated the mountains to the mysterious world beyond. Folks, this was a significant moment. Colonists were now confident enough to risk living in a terrain that gave advantage to stock thieves. It was dense bush and rocky mountain ranges, excellent for hiding cattle rustled from farms. The growth of lone farms along the Ulifants River accelerated rapidly, so that by 1732 the entire length of the river had been colonized. There were now farms as far north as the confluence of the Ulifants and Doran rivers, as well as the Vidu River. But that was as far as they could go for now. Beyond the Ulifants, the aridity of the Knaasvlakte and the Hardafelt meant the new lone farmers aimed westwards. The high mountains of the Cedarbach and Bockefelt, along with the Ornokaru, were now behind them. They were now heading towards the Sandfelt. This area of the Western Cape coastal belt has always been dry, with undulating sand-covered coastal plains that receive less than 300 millimetres of rain annually. While the 1720s and 30s were slightly wetter than the modern period, it was still very dry. And yet, the first reports of these parts by the settlers were full of herds of game, including elephant and rhinoceros. The flays or wetlands were full of fish and bird life. Hippos were common in the pools. Hunters were known to collect bounties of marine resources such as mussels and crayfish, and the felt course came in the form of berries and corms that were found in large numbers. On the eve of this colonial intrusion, the principal human occupation was hunter-gathering. The sand held this land. They had had at least 1,500 years of interaction with the neighboring Khoi pastoralists, an ancient relationship. At the beginning of the 1700s, the sand were clients of the little Namakwa. Some sort of arrangement existed between these two peoples, after such a long period of building relationships. In the better watered areas, the southern Sunfelt, in other words, places like Valura, Langa and Yakalsfle, there lived the Grigwikwa. They were an interesting group of Khoi whose origins were sand, and were also clients of the little Namakwa. Archaeological evidence points to some conflict at time between the sand and Khoi here, but also cooperation. As the settlers moved into this region, a shift in perception and understanding took place. The complexity of the San and Khoi relationship was not understood at all by these frontier farmers. To them, they were all Hottentots. This would also be where the first really determined opposition to Trek Boer settlement was going to take place since Jan van Riebeck arrived in 1652. These Khoi San of the Sunfelt were not going to be a pushover. There had been clashes with hunters since 1714, and although the company negotiated some kind of peace in 1716, by 1728 there were isolated reports of clashes. In 1729, this escalated. A certain Jan Falk, who was a wealthy farmer at the Langafle in the Sunfeld, reported his cattle had been stolen. Jan Falk also had farms at Jakalsfle, north of Langafle, and at Klapmuts. He was an important source of cattle for the VOC, although he didn't live in the Sunfeld himself. He had left the supervision of these farms to his stepsons, Jan Jakobus and Leendert Lowe. In turn, these stepsons left the tending of the cattle to local Koi. 
A group of what were thought to be San robbed these Khoi in December 1828, and the Lo brothers sought revenge and formed a commando. Of course, the San and Khoi were also hankering for a fight as their land was invaded by outsiders. Daniel Bockelenberg, Jan Pina, Abel Pina, Willem van Beek, and Martin Hilbrandt, who was the Knecht of Matthijs Kruchel, were all featured in the slaughtering handbook of the Sandfeld. The commander caught up with the robbers, described as 300 bushmen, who looked at the couple of dozen boers and were confident enough to say that they would prefer to fight for the cattle. They followed that message up with a shower of arrows and spears. Bockelenberg was wounded in the foot, but Willem van Weyck loosed off a shot from his musket that killed two Khoisan. The commander let fly with a volley that killed another ten Khoisan, and the rest were put to flight. The commander seized more than 80 beasts and sent these back to Klapmut, from where they were handed over to the company. Things now began to move fast. The Khoi complained to the Cape Governor that there were far more than 80 cows involved, and that two men by the name of Hanukom and one of the Low brothers, Liendat, had hidden the rest of the herd away at Langerflei. The Landros of Stellenbosch, an energetic man by the name of Lawrence, was sent by Governor Nut to investigate. At Falk's Jakelsflei farm, seven of the extra cattle were found, along with 31 sheep. A slave and a sand herder were looking after these, but Leondad Lowe claimed they were gifts, and his story was backed up by Willem van Weyck. Clearly, there was also close collaboration between the frontier trekboers and some of the Khoisan, because some of these also corroborated the tale. These present Khoisan allies, however, were going to become the most bitter enemies of the colonists, and the most active leaders of the resistance in 1739 that would tear the frontier apart. These included a man called Swartboy and his son Titus, alias Charmant. Swartboy was a trusted ally of the Trekpoors, they thought, with Jan Falk, who is now an esteemed member of the ruling Himrant or Burger Council of the Cape, declaring that Swartboy was a captain who has lived with my children for a long time. While all of this was going on, tensions were rising. The region had been experiencing a severe drought through that winter of 1728. Trek oxen were now in short supply, and the VOC required almost 100 of these specialized beasts. The colonists refused to sell any to the company, and the Khoi also refused to sell. The company was caught in a catch-22. They could access Trek oxen, but these were owned by the Namatkwa near the Orange River, and they couldn't access the Namatkwa because they didn't have Trek oxen. So they did what monopolistic companies do. The VOC's Council of Policy then passed a law that every two years, stock farmers across the Cape and the frontier were expected to give three four-year-old trek oxen to the company as payment for their loan farms. The previous price had been a low rent of 12 rix dollars a year. This was somewhat of a change. So here we have that moment in history where many things begin stacking up and a spiral takes place. By 1731, Khoisan resistance was stiffening with attacks on colonial farms being logged more regularly. In February of that year, a group of Khoisan known as the Ten Sons of Grabenan, or Grabenau, as he was also called, drove away 33 cattle belonging to Hans-Jürgen Pochita. Earlier, they had already robbed another burger called Friedrich van Jürgen. After almost a week, a posse or commander of 12 colonists tracked down the Ten Sons of Grabenan. The Khoisan began stabbing the cattle to death rather than see them return to the colonists. One of the commando fired a warning shot. The Ten Sons let fly with their arrows and spears, whereupon the Dutch returned fire, killing six, wounding the other four. This is where the momentous change in the taking of prisoners took place. The colonists seized the cattle that survived, but also captured a woman and three children who were then sent back to the Cape, or over the Bach, as it was known. 
This was the first recorded instance of captured Khoisan women and children to be used as labour and would become a common event in the coming wars of the frontier. A single Khoisan man survived and he stood on a nearby cliff screaming obscenities at the Dutch commander. What he had to say has resonated to this day. He said, We Bushmen have still more people and we will not leave the Dutch in peace. The other major implication of the growing clashes was the governor now demanded that instead of reports from the frontier, the Landros should report incidents to him in person. As a consequence, records from 1731 until 1738 are sparse, and that was when events would become so violent that verbal reports were no longer satisfactory. The ferocity of the Khoisan response to these decades of steady erosion of their hunting and grazing lands was going to be of a far greater magnitude than any previous rebellion or uprising. The main instigators of the uprising of 1739 were men who had been living and working on the frontier farms for several years. They had particular grievances about treatment, payment, abuse of their women. It was personal, this coming violence. They also knew how to speak Dutch, and they knew how to use firearms. Their valuable insight into how the Trek Boers fought would be crucial in prizing open the weaknesses of the colonists. In many cases, I'm going to describe in the next podcast, ex-masters fought ex-servants, a fact which increased the bitterness of the fighting. The trigger for this war, however, was what happened just before the ploughing season of 1738. Swatboy and his son Titus, alias Chamont, joined a group of ten colonists who went on an expedition deeper into the frontier to visit the little Namakwa. Ten wagons laden with gunpowder, lead, iron, copper and beads, as well as other trading items, wound their way across the semi-desert. This was an illegal expedition. But the VOC was now hundreds of miles away, so what did they know? Although men such as Jan Falk and Jürgen Hanukum did know, as Falk's farm superintendent Willem van Veek was a member of this expedition. After successfully bartering a few cattle from the little Namakwa, they left these in the safekeeping of a servant called Yankee and headed even deeper into the interior, to the land of the great Namakwa across the Groot or Orange River. What happened here is fascinating. They stayed for a month at the Kraal of Gal, the great Namakwa chief. It was the first recorded expedition of settlers this far. Remarkable, really. Ivory hunters, we know, had already done so, but secretly. And they had not made the big mistakes that Van Veek and his sidekicks were about to make. Things went well at first. The colonists bartered cattle from their hosts, while Willem van Veek took a wife in coy fashion, as it was known. That is, from a relative of Hull, the great chief. Not only that, but van Veek became an honorary coy and conducted himself in this matter and clothing himself at the time as a hottentot. Part of the initiation ceremony called the Tikami involved being urinated upon, and from then on his name, even among the Trek Boers, was Willem Namakwa. But van Veek and his cohorts had other plans. At the time of their departure, the colonists slipped away and instructed Swatboy and Titus, alias Shamant, and others to return to the kraal and then carry off all the cattle. The servants were promised firearms and a share of the loot to commit their heinous act. At dawn it began with a surprise attack where seven of the great Namakwa, including Captain Gull, the great chief, were killed and all the cattle driven away. On the way home, the men of this terrible trek party dropped all pretense at self-restraint. They stopped at the kraal of Arisi, a captain of the little Namakwa. Arisi's wife was shot dead, her baby was wounded, along with the third member of the clan. A famous name was involved in this killing. The Dutch called him Hottentot Kaiser, who lived with Hendrik Kruger. Another was Klaas Kok, 
the ancestor of the famous Kok family that would later become notorious throughout the northern frontier zone. So far, so good, thought Van Veek and his men. But when they eventually returned to the Picketback, they made another big mistake by refusing to honour their agreements with Swatboy and Titus. Instead of sharing in the spoils of their murders, the colonists hid their spoils in one of the numerous kloofs of the region and redistributed the rest amongst family and friends, none for the Khoi. The cheated servants immediately headed off to Cape Town to report Van Veek. Separately, three representatives of Arisi of the Little Namakwa had also headed south to tell the governor what had happened. And Captain Kharan of the Great Namakwa was the third separate report received by the governor and it was explained how Khal had been murdered in his own Orange River crawl. So by March 1739, the Council of Policy, the Hemrodden, were fully aware that all was going pear-shaped in the northern frontier. And with that, we must halt for this episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes or any of the other platforms of choice. You can also contact me on Twitter, at Des Latham, or through my website, desmondlatham.blog, and another, desmondlatham.com. Until we meet again, goodbye. Thank you.